Jim. Lovely. Thank you for that beautiful greeting. Um, oh, my goodness, my nerves are shot to pieces. And I do this all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I share, I chair, I... But I think more so today because this meeting is very, very dear to me. It's a very, it holds a special place in my heart, as do all AA meetings, but this has been a huge part of my journey and a huge part of my sobriety. So um, what I'm going to do before I start, and this is what I tend to do before entering any meeting or before it, any any sort of thing that I, I enter with fear, I do a, the set-aside prayer and I remix it a little bit. So if you could all join me, with the set-aside prayer, um, it is a lifesaver. And for those of you that don't know about it, welcome. Um, so God, please set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about my program, everything I think I know about this meeting, everything I think I know about these fellows in this meeting, so that I may have a new experience in you and with you. Please speak through me, see through me, set aside my ego, my wanting to impress, so that I may be of use and be helpful to another alcoholic or anyone on this meeting. Thy will not mine be done. That prayer for me feels like an, an exhale. It also feels like that thing that I look for in the bottom of a bottle. All I wanted out of a drink was that exhale, that exhale to this, that exhale to life and to worries and concerns and wanting to be what you wanted me to be or what I felt you wanted me to be. And um, it's just beautiful how I don't need an external source to get that today, which I never thought was possible. It's mad. I, I I don't know what's going to come out today, but all I know is that I've got to take myself away, set aside myself. Because what Nicole wants to do is, is run the show. What Nicole thinks a fabulous chair looks like is completely separate from what my higher power wants. And that's what I try to feed into my everyday life. You know, when I interact with humans, when I go to work, when I speak to a fellow, when I help a newcomer, when I sponsor, you know, I I ask God to remove me because me, on my own will, creates carnage, creates chaos. And I don't even know it. And I can get that delusion of, of that voice in my head saying, this is the right path. This is what you should be doing. That was so, so loud when I first came into the rooms. I couldn't differentiate left from right. I didn't know if it was Nicole, if it was God. I didn't know what God looked like. I had a preconceived idea, which was the God that I'd been brought up with. and But I was very fearful. And I've often heard this in the rooms, you know, my ego was in the penthouse and my self-esteem was in the basement. 
And I thought in order to be strong and in order to succeed, you need that ego. But how wrong was I? Because every time I tapped into the ego, carnage was created. So I'll go back a bit, you know. Um, I was brought up in a beautiful, loving family, you know, firstborn out of three today. And um, I wanted for nothing. I, both parents, neither of them were alcoholics, are alcoholics. I guess I was loved to the best I could be, you know. Um, but from as young as I can remember, I felt different. I often wanted to be somewhere else or some a different way, you know, and today I know that to be the ism. I believe I was born, this alcoholic was born with the ism because I go way back before I even picked up a drink. And I guess my first escape was fantasy. That was the most reachable, tangible thing that I could escape in. And I remember I was thinking back, you know, I remember I'd dress up in my dad's clothes. That could have been for other reasons, you know, but I'd dress up in my dad's clothes and I'd want to be him one day. And then I'd mimic my friend at school. And this is as far back as nursery. But that escape for me felt comfortable. And um, that that continued throughout. And it was tiring because I often, being someone else, one gives you no, gives you no idea of who you are. And it's very tiring because you're having to put a mask on. Now it served me later on in life in my chosen career, but at the time that was my coping strategy. Um, I fast forward to the age of four, um, and I've only recently started to mention this. I, I, and the reason being is because I held on to this, in this 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 experience for so long as to why I was an alcoholic and why I drank the way I did. You drank, you drink the way I drank. If you experienced what I experienced, I held it like a badge of honor. It was my, it was my excuse. Welcome Ian B. Um, and I experienced trauma at the hands of someone I should have, I was meant to have trusted, you know, at a very young age and that followed through for many years but i had the escape i had the fantasy so whatever was happening my happening in my reality i'd block out and some of you have heard of my invisible black curtains which whatever was really happening in my life happened behind these curtains and the creation i created was happening in front of the curtains and that was my coping strategy i guess today you'd call it a character defect, avoidance. But it was my coping strategy and it kept me, it made me feel safe. Um, and that instilled in me from a young age that I cannot trust. And if I can't trust, then I won't let you see me. So how do I do that? I'll couple that up with the fantasy and I'll create this image of who I feel you want me to be. 
So in friend circles, even in family, you know, I, I'd be the, the counsellor, I'd be the, the class clown, I'd be the mother figure, father figure, you know. Fast forward to the age of six when my sister was born now. She was born severely developmentally delayed, one year to live, two holes in her heart. And naturally, all the attention was on her. You know, we lived, practically lived in hospitals and I knew what to do in that situation. And I guess today that, I, that what that looks like is service. It allowed me to come out of myself, but I was very young, you know, but that, that's, I fit that role. I could be there. Um, and obviously all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, behind the curtains, didn't exist because I, I had this life going on in front. And again, that's all really tiring. Even saying out loud, that is tiring stuff, you know, for a young child. But that's all I knew. And that was the, the trajectory of, of, of my growing up. My brother was born at the age of 10. He was born type 1 diabetic. And, and, and again, it was like, okay, I know what to do with this, you know. I'd give him his insulin, I'd be that caretaker, and that was okay. But slowly, those curtains would, would, would open and, and, and reality would peep in, but I'd slam them shut, and I'd double up on the efforts of, of, of creating the fantasy. At the age of 13, I uh, experienced my first drunk. Oh, my goodness, I just remember. I was responsible as a child, you know, so my nan gave me the the keys to her her house and said, you can bring some friends round. She was away back in her hometown of St. Lucia. And she said, bring some friends round, look after the place, don't mess it up, tidy it up. That was it. So we went into the house and I remember the drinks cabinet. You know, the drinks cabinet was a place that I'd see adults go, tuck into, come out and be happy. And I was like... Let me have some of that, you know. And I remember there were some of my granddad's super teas in the fridge. So before cracking on with the drinks cabinet, I remember opening that super tea and my friends didn't like it, but I cracked open that bottle, that can, and I glugged that drink like my life depended on it. And it was that exhale that exhale that I'd been looking for, for forever. That, and I remember just thinking like, where, where's this been all my life? All that needing to be someone else, that, that needing to show up and be and disappeared. And I just kept drinking. And I remember the can falling over on the floor and, and I got down on my hands and knees and sucked my nan's carpet dry. Who does that? We do that, right? We do that when we find our solution. That was my solution to this. And any way or any which way I could get it, I, I, I wanted more. And my friends just looked at me as though I was insane. They were like, Nick, Nick, there's more cans in the fridge. Like, you really don't have to get on your hands and knees there. But I didn't see that. I just saw my solution. And that, you know, I, I wanted more of it. Now, they say it's a progressive illness. We know it's a progressive illness, you know, because 
I didn't drink daily from that day. I drank when I could. I'd hide it, you know. Um, but I continued coupling the fantasy with the drink. But the fantasy was too much of hard work. It was hard work, you know. Us alcoholics want shortcuts. And um, I got through school, scraped through school. Um, and I remember my 18th birthday. Now, that's the ticket to drink, right? And I went out and I took friends out and I was like, we're going to get drunk. They were like, all right, let's do it. And every weekend, I guess thereafter, I'd get drunk. Unless I had a distraction. And what that distraction looked like was in the form of a relationship. And that was always temporary. As we know, anything external to ourselves is temporary. Um, but the drinking got worse and as did the consequences. And, you know, I, I, I left school. I got into uni and I thought if I get these things on paper, I won't need to fill it with drink anymore. I won't need to fill it with relationships. I won't need to fill it with money. And I got those things on paper. I graduated from uni. I got the job of my dreams. I had the partner of my dreams. But I was still desperately unhappy. And the only thing that could fill that unhappiness was the drink. But at that stage, I still loved it, but I didn't like the consequences that came along with it. How do I eliminate the consequences? As it says in the big book, if only I, I drink water between drinks, or if only I don't drink that spirit, if only I bring out enough cash so that I don't overspend and overdrink, none of it worked. Because... As I learned in the big book, you know, once I put one drink inside of me, I set off the phenomenon of craving. All bets are off. I want another drink and I will get it, whether I have no money. And that's what I did. And as we know, it's the rapacious creditor. It takes stuff away. I stopped being accountable. I stopped being lovable. Those who loved me were heartbroken to see this, this, this person. They, they always knew to be accountable, to be loving, to be care, carefree, caring, you know, just destroying themselves in front of their eyes. And all I thought was about me. I thought the best thing for me was to stay away from you guys if I stay away out of your lives then you won't have to deal with me playing the victim I played that very well and I didn't think I was harming anyone around me you know and um, a relationship would break down and I turned to my best friend the drink and um, I stopped showing up to auditions or I'd show up rattling wanting that next drink, wanting to just get out. And it's insane just hearing, it. rehashing all of that stuff because it's, by the grace of God, so far removed from who I am today. And that's because of this program. That's because of the fellowship. That's because of service. That's living in the triangle. 
So I'll fast forward. This continued for, for, for years. You know, I the arrests started coming in thick and fast. I'd wake up in police cells wondering how the hell have I got here again? You know, I I all I wanted to do was get that clear bag that they that they made me put my drink in and get out and do the same thing until I couldn't, until I had my third or fourth arrest. And they said to me, we can take this further or we can get you help. And I just appeased them. I, I told them what I thought they wanted to hear just to get out and drink again. They said, right, on Monday morning, we're going to take you to an alcohol service in London, Camden, and... Um, we're going to get you on the road to recovery. And that put the fear in me because I thought I can't hide behind anything. I would hide when I'd go to the doctors, I'd hide behind being depressed. I'd hide behind my story. But there in plain sight were the facts. Alcohol was the common denominator in every arrest. But I said, yes, just to keep them, get them off my back and allow me out of that cell. And the Monday morning, I remember, you know, at this point, I couldn't leave the house without a drink. I couldn't face the world without a drink. So I got my bottle, put it in my bag, stuffed tissues between my bottle and the perfume, just so that you guys wouldn't smell it. And um, I went. And at the alcohol service, you know, they did the best they could. It wasn't a 12-step alcohol service. It was drink diaries. Um, CBT, MBT, DBT, Tai Chi, green tea, all the teas, you know, it was trying to discover a way of helping me control my drinking. And that looked doable to me because I just thought, if you guys show me how to control my drinking, then I can still have my best friend and I can crack on with my life. Now, the alcoholic of this type, cannot control a thing. Control drinking doesn't work. But I continued. And what I did is I lied. I lied about how much I drank when I brought in the drink diaries. I lied about the units I took in a, in a week because I didn't want them to take that away from me. But I hated the consequences and I hated what it did to me and people around me. And I didn't understand how people could go through life without a drink. Um, I was there for about nine months and it got to a point where I couldn't pick up a fork. I was desperately unwell. And the doctor gave me the ticket by saying, you cannot just stop drinking. That for me was the ticket to, well, if the doctor says I can't stop drinking, I have to continue, right? But they, I had to have an intervention. They had to come over and take me to the service and get me on the waiting list to go to rehab. And that was scary. Because if I'm in rehab, I can't drink. And that's where my journey began in AA. Um, the 15th of July, 2015, I got to rehab. I can't remember how I got there. I remember down in that bottle, and I remember waking up in rehab. How I got there, I do not know. And I remember them saying to me, we cannot, because I just wanted Librium. Give me something. And they said, we cannot give that to you until you go below zero. 
you've got too much alcohol in your system. That took about two days. And I was rattling. Now, the reason I went to rehab at the time was to one, get people off my back, two, to stop the consequences. But the main reason was to keep a relationship. Um, I was with someone who I loved dearly. We were both desperately unwell. She was one of us, 110%. But she was worse than me in my mind because she took class A's. So did I to continue my drinking. She took prescription drugs. So did I to stop the shakes. But the idea was that I go to rehab. I learn this trick of how to work and work a sober life and I'll come back and we will live happily ever after now I say when you make plans God laughs right um it didn't work out that way I got into rehab I drank on my third day of being in rehab on Librium I was met by someone in the rehab who would see me wailing at the table the dinner table every night saying, I want a drink, I need a drink. And he took me under his wing and he showed me how to get out and get a drink. Now, that is a straight discharge at rehab. If you drink whilst in rehab, it's a straight discharge. But no one found out. So I cracked on. And I remember that drink. I remember having to share it with this guy. And it was a quarter bottle. And um, I remember getting down to the end of the bottle and thinking... It's never going to be enough. It never is enough. But I carried on in rehab. And whilst in rehab, myself and Paula part ways. Um, and I didn't know what to do with myself because I came in for you. How dare you? So I did what I always do, did. And I replaced her with someone else in rehab. I ended up having two relationships in rehab and didn't touch the steps. I'd get written warnings. And every time you get a written warning, it kind of sets you back before starting on step one. So I'd have to do work around that written warning. I acted out. I wasn't ready. And um, one, the second person I had a relationship with was discharged for attacking the uh, the manager at rehab. I do choose them. And um, I couldn't take it because I had no one to hide behind. So what did I do? I spoke to the counselor there and I said, I drank, I drank on my third day. And I remember my counselor saying to me, just in despair, why, why did you tell me? And I said, well, this is an honest program, isn't it? I manipulated the situation to discharge and off I went. And I was in Cardiff at the time and I remember I left at 10 a.m. I woke up at 10 a.m. the next day in a cell in Cardiff with cuts and bruises and gashes all over and wondering how the hell did I get here again? Now at this point I had broken my conditional discharge. I was ready to be locked up. And I remember the uh, the two officers coming down and saying to me, we're going to take you to court because it would be quite an ordeal to take you back down to London in order for you to come back up. 
do you want a brief? And poor me, poor me. No, I I don't deserve one. I don't want one. Um, they said, I suggest you do. And I think at that point I met with this, this lawyer and I got honest. I spoke about everything. And they say in the big book, I'm paraphrasing it, but the best time to to get an alcoholic is when they're jittery, when they've sobered up, but they're at their most vulnerable. And that's where I was. And I remember um, sharing my story and I said, whatever you have to do with me, do it because I give up. It chokes me because that girl was so desperate <clears throat> and didn't know where to turn. And God was with me that day because I remember standing up in the docks and uh, the lawyer had spoken to the brief, the barrister. And the barrister just came back with me and said, what a compelling story, Miss Hall. Drink is not your friend. I'm going to wipe your discharges and um, slap you with a fine. Go and get yourself help. Didn't stop me. I went back to London and I repeated the same pattern. But the beauty of coming back to London was that I had met someone in rehab who graduated. They have something called graduation in rehab. And uh, we don't graduate from this stuff, but yeah. And uh, she took me under her wing and she took me to meetings. And this is August, 2015. I started coming to meetings properly. <laughs> well, not, not properly because I just did meetings, but that's all I could really handle at that point. And I'd see people like yourselves laughing and happy, joyous and free. And, and, and I'd wonder, you guys can't be me. No, you're not me. You, you don't have my story. You, you don't sound like me. You don't look like me. You haven't had what I've been through. And that was my ism trying to separate me from you guys because that wasn't the truth. And where it suggested that we listen to the similarities and not the differences, my head did not want to do that. As I said, my ego was in the penthouse. My 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 self-esteem was in the basement. I knew better, actually. I'd see the scrolls on the walls and I'd see step three came to a belief that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I, I knew I knew that because I was an altar girl as a child. That was my higher power. I know that I'm powerless, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I just haven't found the right concoction. Yeah, I know how to pray and meditate. I've been to retreats all over the country. I I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing, but I kept coming back. But as I kept coming back, and remember, I, I couldn't be out in the wide world without a drink. I'd come back drinking. I'd come into the rooms drunk or just so. I, my rationale was I need to level out. Because my fear, the fear of leaving the house, it wasn't questionable whether I could leave the house without a drink. But you guys loved me. You guys accepted me. However I showed up. And just said, keep coming back. Get yourself a sponsor. Crack on with these steps because these meetings will help you get well. But the steps will keep you well. 
Mm. The steps didn't apply to this alcoholic, you know, um, and I wondered why I was drinking, why I was so desperately unwell. And that continued for four years of me being in and out of the rooms. And I'd see people that came in around me getting well. And maybe I used it as a ticket to, because if I, it was control. If I have, don't touch the steps, then I, I'm in control of this. How out of, how insane is that thinking? I'm in control of my destiny. Like what? I did two parts of the triangle. And as we know, there's the triangle. We've got service, unity, and recovery. I did service. I did tea. I did greeting. I'd, I'd, I'd show up. The unity took time. The unity for me was, was being at the meetings, but I'd run into the meetings and run out before the serenity prayer. Um, And slowly but surely, I started to stay, you know. But I didn't do the the foundation, which is the recovery, the program. And 2019, I was between two service commitments and um, I got a call from a mutual friend of, of mine and, and Paula, the, the, the woman I came in the rooms for, the relationship I tried to save. And it was the dreaded call. It was, she's gone, Nick. This illness took her out. Um, and I remember all I knew to do was to run as fast as my feet could take me to the next meeting. And I broke. And we speak in, in how it works, we hear of honesty. I'd often hear that word honesty. I didn't know what honesty looked like. All I knew was the honesty within my capacity, but that's where I think was my real taste of honesty. And you guys held me. And within my first week of that happening, I met with my first sponsor who said, I'm going, I've been through what you're going through right now in my first month of recovery. And I'm seven years sober, a day at a time. Don't be another statistic, Nick. And we cracked on with the steps. And I guess that was the jumping off point then because all I knew is I didn't want this. I didn't want to feel this. I didn't want alcohol anymore. It stopped working for me. I want to get well. I want what you have. And we went through the steps within a year. We went through quite swiftly, but very detailed. And um, I'd hear about conceding to your innermost self. I didn't get that. I understood it intellectually, as I did when I thought I knew about the steps. But there's that journey from the head to the heart, right? And um, I stopped understanding that I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And I felt it. How that happened, I don't know. Um, going through the doctor's opinion, going through Bill's story, going through 
that solid step one, looking at the evidence of how my life is unmanageable, looking at how I've tried to manage my life, looking at the consequences of my alcoholism, looking at there being no evidence of any time that I've tried to control my drinking or drink like the average drinker, have I been able to stop? And that reinstilled in me that step one, you know. Um, step two, coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. All I needed was the willingness, right? And I had that, but I had to shave away those preconceived ideas of what I felt God looked like because all that I knew of God was fear, being a gay person that has done really horrible things to people. Like I'm, I, sh I felt that God would punish me. And I remember my God, my God, my sponsor at the time saying to me, Nick, that's not God. That's what you've heard or someone else's idea of, or, but it's a God of your understanding. And um, that was the next exhale for me because that was a huge block. Step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. It was as simple as deciding to crack on with the rest of the steps. My sobriety and my life aren't in my hands anymore. And I said, you know, what I wanted this God, to, to, I wanted a picture of what this God looked like and before I could crack on, no, crack on with the steps and your relationship will continue to grow and unveil itself. And that's what I did. And step four for me was the one that I sh shied away from because that's all I saw when I came into the rooms. Having to reveal my deepest, darkest secrets to someone else. But I was ready. And I did it. And step four isn't doing that. Step four is just making the list. And that's what my sponsor kept reiterating. You're just, it's a fact-finding exercise. Just get that shit out of your system. It's not stuff you don't already know. Get it on paper. Get it out. It doesn't serve you. And that's what I did. I made that list. And it was quite cathartic. And there were times where I just feel desperately embarrassed about the the repeat, the repeat of these resentments, the repeat of these fears, the repeat of the sex ideal. I, it was just repeat, repeat, repeat. And my sponsor beautifully put it, you know, if you ask a child to go into their room and clear up all their old toys, they're going to kick, scream, shout. They don't want to do that. If you gently say to a child, go into your room, clear up anything that you don't want, and I'll replace it with something new and more beautiful. That child is going to do that. And that's what my step four and five looked like. I was getting rid of that. Who? I don't want to swear now. That stuff that didn't serve me. To open that channel for beauty. But I didn't know what beauty looked like. But I was ready. I was desperate enough. And um, I cracked on with step four. It was lengthy, but it was so eye-opening. And I realized that in that, you know, I couldn't account for what happened 
to me as a child. But what I was accountable for was how I draw that into my life today. Do I want to be that person that re-abuses herself or that little girl or not? And that was eye-opening. And it was showing that little girl love and compassion and holding her through it. And that was God. And as the... um the flyer speaks of love, you know, that that's what my God of my understanding today looks like. Love and service. If I walk in the direction of love, I'm walking along the right path. Now, love isn't black or white, you know, it's, uh, but I feel it today. Um, yeah, I feel it. When I sat down to that step five, I remember the thought of a drink came in and I remember desperately wanting my sponsor to cancel. She didn't. And um, I said to the first thing I said to her, being honest and open, I said, I want a drink right now. I need a drink in order to share this with you. And she said, of course you do. You're an alcoholic. But we're going to do this. And if you want a drink at the end, it's always going to be there. And I started sharing. And the more I shared and the more I took the action and walked this path, the more that fear dissipated. And the less I wanted that drink, magically. And um, we did it over two, two nights, two days. I didn't get that instant release. But I felt more connected. And I know today that that connection is because I took myself out of my own way. The thing that disconnected me from my higher power and from you was me. And the more I get myself out of the way, the more that channel is clear in order for me to receive and to give. And six and seven for me were, were those coping mechanisms that I built up from way back when um, that no longer served me, those character defects that I needed to see in black and white. And if I saw them, I, I could no longer hide from them. And when they cropped up, I knew I could practice the opposite. And it's a practice and it's a daily practice. Seven doesn't isn't a magic wand that washes your defects of character away, but my tolerance to those behaviors is a lot less today. I can't get away with what I used to be able to, which is a good thing. Um, and then it got to step eight, step eight, making that list again. It was just a list of people that I had harmed along the way. And being the person that I, you know, I wanted to apologize for breathing. I wanted to apologize for being on this earth. Um, so I had a lengthy list and my sponsor going through the channel of my sponsor, we had to shave away a lot. Um, and then I cracked on with step nine now. This is really poignant because I cracked on with my nines, but I left a significant nine out. And I didn't even want to pray around it. Um, but through the motion of going through step nines, we started step 10 so I could maintain 
maintain living in this world, you know, um, and what step 10 looked like and looks like for me today is a spot check inventory. If I'm in fear, if I'm dishonest, if I'm resentful, I can do a spot check inventory throughout my day and I can send it to someone, speak to share it with someone else. And that clears the channel for me to crack on with my day. 11. Was continuing to build that conscious contact with a power greater than myself, my higher power. And that looks like prayer. And that looks like meditation on a daily basis. Now I can be very lazy with meditation. But there's it takes so many forms, you know, I can do it by way of being in a meeting and listening and breathing to a guided meditation. There's a well of forms of meditations out there. And, and all I know is that it keeps that channel clear in order for me to hear my higher power. Um, and I don't often hear this in meetings, but as part of my daily practice, my nightly practice, at the end of the day in, in step 11, it shares that we review our night and uh, I anything that I haven't cleared throughout the day, any apples at the bottom of that bin or cobwebs that I need to clear in order to sleep well for the night and wake up fresh for the morning, I, I, I do a, a night review and I look at where I could have been better helpful throughout the day where I was dishonest, where I kept a secret, where I gossiped, where I was selfish. It's all in the big book. I won't go through it all, but that, and there's nights where I, I, you know, I don't do it and I feel it in the morning, but I know that I can refer to it. And that's, that can be a part of my, my nightly practice because life gets busy, you know, life gets good. But I can, I, I I can't fail to remember that I only have a life because of this, and anything I put before this, I will lose. Um, step twelve: doing this, sponsoring, showing up at meetings, sharing, listening, helping a newcomer, being of service. And I try to practice that principle in all my affairs of being of service when I'm in the workplace, when I'm on the street and I see someone needs help with directions, you know, when I'm of service, I'm, I'm out of myself. I'm out of self and self to me is destructive. Um, now living this program, only works contingent on my spiritual maintenance. When I stop this, I go straight back up the ladder. And that's what I did. In 2020, Christmas, I um, part ways with my sponsor through reasons of, you know, I, I thought that I fell for her and we had to part ways. And, and I stopped going to the same meetings that we both went to. And I stopped looking up when people raised their hands for sponsorship because no one compared. And I stopped going to meetings and I stopped being of service. And slowly but surely, I climbed that ladder of the steps. 
I stop praying and meditating at night. I um, stop doing spot check inventories. My defects of character were coming in thick and fast. I picked up resentments. I took back my will. I played God. Insanity came back. And what was I left with? Me in the bottle. And I picked up from where I left off. Within two weeks of that relapse, I was back to being physically dependent and a wreck. But the beauty of this fellowship is that we have people that love us and care for us and we are never, ever alone. And um, I had a good friend in, in recovery who did a, an intervention and said, Nick, you know what to do. Let's get back in this. I'll give you my sponsor. Now, her sponsor wasn't available at the time, but her sponsor said, why can't you sponsor her? Well, she said, we're friends. You, ca you can't sponsor a friend. It said, where in the big book does it say you cannot sponsor a friend? And, and we did just that. And the beauty of her knowing me was that she knew all my patterns. She seen me in the, in the madness, you know, and um, that step nine, that step nine, shall I say, that I, I didn't want to look at, I did it. And the freedom I got from that was insane. And I say that because a wise person in the rooms said to me, you know, you, you were at step 12. So see it as though you're going from London to Edinburgh. For those of you in the UK, it's like one end of England to the other. Um, you're still in Doncaster, not touching that step nine through will of your own. It's not someone that you couldn't approach. And it's true. And... This stuff works. This stuff works. All I wanted was to not obsess, not not want a drink. And that was bar, but the, 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 that's beyond my wildest dreams. From an around the clock drinker to someone that doesn't obsess over drink today, that doesn't need a drink today, right here, right now, on a Saturday night. That's, in, that, that's beyond my wildest dreams. And I came in for my drinking, but there's so many layers to this stuff. And what my life looks like today, you know, I am a sober member of society. I, I live in 10, 11 and 12 to the best of my ability. My tolerance to certain behaviours and isn't that high which is great because if I don't walk against the 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 what am I trying to say if I don't live in Nicole's will I'm living in in, in God's will and my mind's just gone completely blank there sorry um I'm doing what I love in my day-to-day -day work I don't do it through ego and I'm still, yes, I'm, I'm I'm still acting. And what that looked like to me before was fame, fortune, women, money. And it's the complete opposite today. You know, it's a lot of the work that I do today um, is actually recovery 
linked to recovery in a weird way. And that's because I haven't touched it. I haven't contorted it and made it what I want it to be. You know, um, I work with special needs children and they humble me on a daily basis, as does my sister. And if I ever doubt whether there's a power greater than me, which I don't today because I maintain my spiritual condition, I look at my sister who the doctor said wouldn't live past her first year. And by the grace of God, she's 33, 34. And she's part of my higher power. She humbles me, you know. Um, I was humbled at school the other day. And I often share this. I was scratched. <laughs> and I've been bruised and marked. And But I still love it, you know. And it's not for the wrong reasons today. I'm not bruised and marked because I've fallen off a truck or I've got into a scrap, you know. It's, it's for the right reasons today. And, I, you know... This illness is, is is serious. I've got a couple of minutes, but, you know, I've lost a lot of people along the way. And um, I don't know why I'm given the opportunity to stay sober, but I don't want to mess around with that. I don't want to not hold that torch for, for the still suffering and for those that have gone before us, you know? And that's why I do this stuff. And I love the life, I love the life I live today. And yeah, life isn't all, you know, Disney. It's not all happy, joyous and free daily. You know, life brings its challenges, but I've got a design for living to cope with those challenges. And if I don't know where to look, I can ask. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I think I've come to the end of sharing, but I just want to thank you all for being a part of this tribe. And if anyone is struggling, just remember you need never be alone again. Because we're all a part of this and we're all in this boat together. Um, yeah. So Jill, I will leave it there. Thank you.